Premier Christian Newscast. Febrile atmosphere of 2020, as the world was locking down to save itself from COVID catastrophe, the murder of George Floyd sparked an international reckoning with racism. And just like countless other institutions, the Church of England also began to wrestle with its own record on inclusion and diversity. Just as bishops began to take the knee and Justin Welby declared his own church was institutionally racist, two explosive cases of racism against clergy emerged, almost to prove his point. I'm Tim Wyatt, and you're listening to the Premier Christian Newscast. This week, we're exploring the battle to dismantle racism in the Church of England. Were the tumultuous events of 2020 a turning point, as the hierarchy hoped? Is the new racial justice team which emerged from that year actually making any progress? What is it actually like to be an ethnic minority Christian within the Church of England today? And are we any closer to realising the dream of a national church which genuinely welcomes and celebrates all cultures and ethnicities? Even before the pandemic and Black Lives Matter, Months before any bishops were pictured taking the knee, or the statue of the prominent Anglican slave trader Thomas Colston had been hurled into Bristol Harbour, the Windrush scandal had already prompted the Archbishop of Canterbury to declare in February at the General Synod that the church he led was institutionally racist. It was into this potent mix that, by total coincidence, two separate cases of racism against ethnic minority clergy hit the headlines. First was the tale of Augustine Tanner Eim. American by birth, Tanner Eim had felt a call to serve God in England during a ministry trip, and by 2020 had almost completed his three years of training to become a vicar. But when he applied for a curacy post in Hertfordshire, a local diocesan official shut down the negotiations on the grounds that the parish was, quote, a monochrome white working class community, which could have made the black priest feel uncomfortable. Uh, I went on the Church of England's website when it talked about um, it actually says, it's, it's interesting, it's called after ordination, which is confusing because you're looking for something before you're ordained, <laughs> but uh, a title post. So I went through the whole thing. I contacted a bunch of dioceses and I saw one particular church that was offered in the Diocese of St. Albans. Um, and um, I was like, wow, that looks really, really good. Um, now, because it's now because it's, it's years, years later, I can say it, um, but it was uh, supposed to be like a, um, a revitalization church with um soul survivor church so i was like oh this is really cool this is my church tradition evangelical charismatic evangelical um and um yeah and it's not far from um, a city so it was really really great so then i contacted the assistant ddo and a ddo and um yeah and that's kind of where it all started and so you you found this curiosity off your own bat in in st albans diocese you kind of contacted the diocese and said i'm interested can we have a conversation and and what do they say back to you yeah so we went back and forth um just applications stuff like that and um and then the uh, ddl kind of just stopped stopped the process and said um though you seem like a very good candidate we don't think it's appropriate for you to um be the curate here because assistant curate because um, this is a white working class community and you wouldn't fit in. And how did you 
feel when you read those words in that email? It must have, did it come as a huge shock? You know, what's interesting is, you know, the, the Church of England and the racism I've experienced has been um, very different than the States. Um, and it's, um, it's been mostly subtle, <laughs> a lot more subtle. Um, English people are really good at their words. Um, so this was quite blatant. So that was, I was a bit surprised. Um, it was also um, the day before my birthday, the day before my 30th birthday. So I was just like, oh, wow. Um, I, I held to it. I was, I was very, very upset. Um, very upset. That I was like, oh, wow, this is just blatant. As well as um, anyone who have gone through the curacy process of trying to find a curacy and having their friends get curacy, look at the house, know where they're going to go. And you're like, oh, my goodness, this is like, you know, you know, people, some people are moving before Easter. Um, some people are moved before Easter. And this is February now. And I'm like February 2020. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is absolutely crazy. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Um, as well as I'm on a visa in the UK. So I'm like, well, what's going like, to happen? Am I going to have to just go home? What, what is that? Um, so, yeah, so it was it was very, very scary. But I didn't go public with it. I didn't go public. And I didn't go public really with the process until um, basically until about um, um, the Black Lives Matter stuff happened. Um, I didn't have a curacy. Um, and I was just like, oh, what? you know, kind of, what do I do? What, what's the, what, what's going on? And what happened is that, um, when that kind of happened, I, um, I saw people like taking a knee, bishops and stuff, taking a knee, making statements and things like that. And I was just like, come on, this is crap. This is all for show. So then basically I said, you know what? Um, actually, interesting, I, I asked a friend of mine who's a lot better at graphics and things like that than me. And I said, how do you, how do I get this email, screenshot this email, um, but make sure that the, the, the diocese and the person that wrote it is not um, clarified? Because one thing I didn't want to do is I didn't, I didn't want it to be about a diocese. I didn't want it to be about attacking a person. I definitely didn't want to be attacking the particular church because the church probably had no matter, no say in it. So, um, so then my friend kind of taught me how to like edit it to do that. And then I post national and international news. Now I know this sounds very silly, Tim, but I was, maybe I was naive because it was the pandemic and I was just all by myself. I didn't expect it to blow up as big as it did. Several years earlier, another ethnic minority trainee vicar had been applying for jobs. To try and get prepared ahead of one interview, Alwyn Pereira requested a copy of his church personnel file, but in it, he stumbled across emails from his then bishop to other senior Duzzus employees that stunned him. So I asked for my file, my blue file, which is like an HR file, and uh, thought, because I want to be up, clued up, if they ask me any interview questions, uh, what's, um, is anything on there, then I know how to answer this. And it was whilst Looking at that file, I found the letter written, an internal letter uh, written by the then Bishop of Bristol, which had been gone through his gone through his PA and written to another clergy to say, would you, really basically asking, would you kind of consider taking Orwin under your wing? 
Okay, and in it, he wrote, first of all, that I'm of Sri Lankan. The opening line is, I'm of Sri Lankan descent. Uh, well, I'm not Sri Lankan, and I'm not Sri Lankan descent. Uh, why would you even think, why would, is that any relevant? What, uh, what's that got to do with it? And then it said that I'm on my last chance. I'm on the last chance. What last chance? Of rehabilitation. For what? What is it I've done? I've nothing. There isn't a CDM for me. There isn't a remediation that I need to do extra training. I've been signed off. I've got a superb report. This this kind of this thing gets even more interesting because it then says, think one of the major misunderstandings of Orwin is due to his ethnicity. Oh, okay. Let's have a look at this. And then it said, in my experience of having worked with people from the Indian subcontinent, they all have issues around truth and clarity in their communications. Wow. Wow. I mean, that just completely shocked me. And I didn't know what to do with it. I was completely shocked. I didn't know. And I was thinking, is that racist? And all the time, you know, I'm about to go for another interview. This is in 2017. And I've got this. And I, I'm shocked. And I'm thinking it must be me. I must be I don't know, maybe I'm just not effective a communicator. I can't communicate well to fellow colleagues in the church. And I must be coming out, it must just be coming out all wrong because they don't believe me. And I'm thinking I must have a, I, I'm owning this issue of maybe not having uh, integrity or truth and uh, not being an effective communicator and just feeling so low and and hurt, deeply hurt and wounded that that's the perception and that and shocked that I had gone through a PA, had gone through the to the uh, another um, clergy leader of the church who did not even question that statement. Is this racist? But actually said um, something like, does Owen know he's on the all, all that the reply from the other colleague was, um, does Orwin know he's on the last chance? And no comment after that, no, no replies. So that it just came across as an absolute shock. And it did say in the letter that they had discussed me at senior leadership. And therefore, to, and this was what they thought of, uh, this misunderstanding, the conclusion. So that means the whole of the senior leadership at that diocese had considered this. And no one had no one had confronted or challenged about this at all. I then did a um, subject access request for uh, to get more files, and I found emails, internal emails, replying to me from 2014. I've written saying, I need help. Please, can you help me? I'm not getting any interviews. Could you help me, Bishop, uh, to work out what I should do? And in this internal email to other bishops and to senior leadership staff, including the diocesan um, uh, registrar, not register, the diocesan executive, the officer, yeah, everyone's copied senior leadership. It says, uh, we have a serious problem here uh, because I know you told me 
suffragan bishop you, you told me bishop swindon that you were resisting his application forms on the ground of cultural eccentricities that he had applied for these jobs and and he clearly was more experienced for these jobs but he did not get interviews we need to think about how because this could be perceived as discrimination so that's an internal email going in 2014 with evidence they're saying you have resisted these application forms on the grounds of cultural eccentricities whatever that could mean cultural eccentricities Increasingly angered by the discovery his own bishops had been stymieing his career for seemingly racist reasons, Pereira began a lengthy attempt to seek redress through the courts. His case before an employment tribunal was eventually dismissed, but news of it did not break until the fateful summer of 2020. All of a sudden, the C of E was reeling. In the space of just a few months, two serious cases of overt racism against its own clergy had arisen, just as it had begun to account for historic failings. The spectre of racial injustice seemed to haunt the institution wherever you looked. Was the Church of England really just as hostile an environment to people of colour as every other part of England seemed to be? Both Tanner Eim and Pereira said that they had seen everyday low-level discrimination and prejudice throughout their ministries, before and after their curacy incidents. Oh, I've seen, seen it all the time. Um, I see it. I see, and I still see it every day. Um, and um, my training incumbent. So I'm, I'm at the very last two months of my curacy. And um, what's one thing's really interesting is with that is, I am, um, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing the different microaggressions that you might say, and um, I see it all the time. And my training incumbent is slowly finally getting it not from an intellectual but from experiential um and like for instance like just on monday night we had a meeting in our church hall and um it's a big community hall and people go in and out and we're we're the type of church that we don't wear our collars all the time and he was going into the building um, and so people were there holding it for another group and he's went in no questions asked and the, the person stopped me and said what are you doing here i go excuse me he goes what are you doing here are you here for a meeting? And I said, well, I'm here. Oh, goodness. Um, I'm here for, um, I'm here because I'm, I'm one of the clergy here. And you're like, oh, okay. And, and my vicar was like, you have to do that all the time. And um, and I'm like, yeah, I have to do that all the time. And I'm like, yeah, it's really, it's really, really irritating. And he just was like, oh my goodness, that would just be really irritating. I'm like, yes, very, very irritating. Um, another incident is I was at the cathedral um, for Chrism Mass, um, for the diocese. And I had my collar on with all my friends, a um, bunch of clergy. And interestingly, what happened is I was, I went in and a security guard came up to me with all, all of our, I mean, we had robe. I mean, I was properly robed up with everyone. And he goes, what are you doing here? And I go, I'm doing, I'm here for the, for the service. He goes, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah. And um, interesting, we go and um, it, and I was just like, that was just really, really irritating. Um, also, the dean of my cathedral is a black man, by the way. Um, the only black man who's a dean of cathedral in the Church of England. Um, and I was just like, that was just really annoying. And then the people around me were like, I can't believe it just happened. And like, this is what you, this is what you talk about, what you write about. We just experienced what you always talk about, like, whatever. And one lady, she was so emotional. She was a white woman. She was so emotional that that just happened to me that she couldn't believe it happened. She had to leave and go home. 
Really? And she's like, I can't believe it just happened. At my my selection to be to uh, for ordination, I was asked interesting three interesting questions, which other people were not asked. So we're talking about two thousand and two thousand and seven. 2007 that was when i went for that selection i was asked um first question it's the church of england it's not the church of asia it's not the church of africa you're you know it's the church of england it's english why do you want to be in the church of england because you're not english okay thank you first question second question is um you're black and all black people beat up their wives do you what do you think about that okay i see uh right okay and then the third question was well most of you all your kind are really good at tech and i see you've done some sales before you've been in an ad agency and you worked in in marketing you're you know your your guys are really good at tech why don't you sell mobile phones why aren't you into another industry and selling mobile phones and down the commercial road uh right okay and then at the end of the interview i said those were very um shocking questions the interviewer said to me well i was just wanted to see how you would react whether you'd respond with a with aggression or whether you would because you are going to face this and actually you you answered really well i mean throughout my time working churches i've had to face those people would say oh i've moved out of london because it's full of black people but you're all right uh you know so i'd get that in church quite a lot all the time and someone calling me boy and not calling me by my name i was called gungadin by somebody and i said that's not my name and i will not answer to that that is not my name. And uh, at PCC meetings, things like that. So over the 16 years working in churches, I have had that kind of experience. The Bishop of Leicester, Martin Snow, who sits on the Church of England's Committee for Minority Ethnic Anglican Concerns, said he had been frankly shocked to hear about some of the experiences ethnic minority clergy in his diocese had endured. So we had a partnership actually with Loughborough University whereby we got a researcher in to come and spend time with some of our global majority heritage clergy and lay people in the diocese and to interview them on their experiences. So if you like, to try and create a safe space where they felt they could really speak openly about their experiences. And I just have to say, I was frankly shocked. Um, so even in a place like Leicester, where you'd think people are, are you know, very used to uh, uh, interactions with people of uh, different cultures and uh, ethnicities, actually the stories people were telling were of, on occasions, yes, blatant racism. On occasions, uh, what's often referred to, I think, as sort of microaggressions. So people throw away comments that people, uh, you know, whites, British people like me think nothing about but actually can cause real pain to other people. Um, and expressions of, I suppose, of being misunderstood or misinterpreted, uh, all these sorts of things. Likewise, even the church's first racial justice director, Guy Hewitt, admitted that bias against clergy from diverse backgrounds was still a problem. While there is no um, systematic record being kept in the church on racism against clergy. Anecdotal evidence suggests that unconscious bias, and I dare say conscious bias is a reality of the church. 
a few dioceses now are collecting information or are planning to collect information on the rate of racial incidents, which I know the Racial Justice, sorry, the um, Racial Justice Commission is very keen to support, but we haven't got there yet. But I, as I said, anecdotally, many of my counterparts, similar other global majority heritage clerics in the church will say that they have experienced this. But I need to underscore that while I don't take this as people in the church being racist in, uh, um, in terms of a distorted mindset, I think what there is, is a lack of appreciation for the reality of white privilege. And this is increasingly significant in a society or a country that derive much of its wealth and status from um, colonization, which as a process discriminated against the colonized. Brunel James, a cleric who works within Hewitt's Racial Justice Department, said that while the claims of institutional racism were accurate, in the end, the problem was not an institution per se, but the people who made up that organisation. I think it's very easy for individuals and institutions to say basically everything's fine, you know, nothing to see, nothing to worry about, we're all nice people, you know, everything's great. Um, and the problem is that that's just a naive view of life, you know, that that we, we don't treat everyone equally, you know, even if we're trying to, you know, that's still beyond us. And the way things are currently set up, what, it, what institutional racism means is that the sort of the white male voice has a lot more power in the church as it stands than is fair to all the other types of people within the church and um if you're a woman lots of female clergy feel that their voice isn't heard and doesn't count if you're from a global minority background um sorry global majority background um then again you can find that, that, that your voice even though you've you know worked really hard studied really hard God ordained, work really hard in parishes, that somehow, you know, your voice just doesn't count as much as, as other people's voices. Again, we, we can sort of blame the institution, but who is the institution? It's just an aggregation of all these Anglicans up and down the country of, you know, the funeral director down the road who um doesn't want to place a black clergy person in the front room of a of a white family because he thinks, oh that's not going to work. So I'll I'll try and yeah this this family I know they won't like that clergy person because they're black and female and that's not what they're expecting so I'll work round that and I'll I'll try and get some retired vicar in to do it instead you know who'll fit with that family's prejudice that that's the kind of thing that that does happen out there you know or you know if you're a, a clergyman from a a diverse background and yeah, you, you know, you, you apply for that job in that parish and the parish reps are a bit, you know, not sure if they want someone like you because you're not what they're used to, you know. And in, even if you get over that hurdle, you're then, you know, in your first PCC meeting or 
your 15th PCC meeting and and maybe people are being a bit funny with you because you're the way, you know, or people, you know, you, you think you've preached a great sermon um, and all anyone says is, oh, I couldn't quite understand what you said because your accent's a bit funny. You know, that that's what we're talking about, that people have gifts which are there to build up the church and then the church can turn around and and say, well, we can't receive your gifting because you just don't look right to us. You don't just don't sound right to us. And, and we, you know, we're just going to put, put grit in your wheels and just make everything grinding and slow for you. A similar point was made by Elizabeth Henry, who resigned from her role as the C of E's National Advisor on Race and Ethnicity in 2020. The idea of institutional racism was probably unhelpful at this point in the conversation, she said. And if you put that definition into a nutshell, it can be seen or detected in the policies, procedures, processes and practices of an organisation that discriminate against some people based on the colour of their skin. So processes, procedures, policies and practice. The problem with the whole definition of institutional racism, as many institutions have used it almost as a badge of honour. So the, a key leader in the institution stands upon a podium and says, oh, yes, we're institutionally racist and it's not good, and etc., etc., um, and gets literally a badge of honour for actually acknowledging it. But the problem is policies, procedures, process, practice, there's nothing about people in that definition. And many of us at the time talked about and urged that the definition was not used in that way, that they broadened that definition to understand. Because, of course, what people think is, well, it's not me. It's not me. It's nothing that I do. Nothing that I say or do. I don't have any, it's the policies, it's the procedures, it's the process, the practice. So in other words, it's it's the systems, oh. it's the structures and the systems, as if those structures and systems are not operated and maintained and 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 held onto by the ve- by the very people. So unless we're talking about how racism is driven, by people the systems don't drive it alone it's all that goes into those systems all that goes into those structures that that is then churned out and delivered by people that causes the abuse because that's what racism is that's exactly what i'm saying and this is exactly what i have talked about again i will use that phrase for myself ad nauseum as the national advisor in the church unless there is responsibility and by and before you can have responsibility to you've got to have accountability unless those who oppress are taking that individual responsibility acknowledging that sin theologically acknowledging that sin that individual that personal sin we we, we're very quick to talk about we're all fallen we're all what does that even mean if if all it becomes is a phrase whereby what we when we have something like this let's say racism we then, you know, talk about how the Archbishop has owned it because he talked about it. He hasn't owned it. He hasn't owned it. 
is the Church of England institutionally racist? The problem with that discussion is it's not talking about people. So, so what we get is this discussion, you and I and others, where we talk about the institution as if the institution is some sort of individual entity. Hmm. You know, that, that, that then, you know, uh, divides out this, this sort of treatment. No, it's the people. And, and this is the hardest thing for people. I believe it's the hardest thing for people. Why? I don't know a single person who wants to think of themselves in any way as racist. I have worked all over the world and I, I, I lived in America for 10 years and for some of that I lived in the South. I have met with Ku Klux Klan meetings or whatever they want to call them and even they don't say they're racist even they don't say they're racist because they don't see it as racism they don't see it as racism and 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 this is where we have an awful lot of of the problem people don't want to think of themselves as racist and and the the arguments get into you know the offender being offended that it's being called out and so it, how dare you say that oh, this isn't me uh, uh, we, we, it becomes cyclical and that that's where we are it's cyclical so you've either got somebody like the archbishop of canterbury saying we're institutionally racist which which then everybody can go away and still feel comfortable with themselves they're not in, at all uncomfortable because you know racism is uncomfortable it's uncomfortable for those on the receiving end and it's uncomfortable for those who meet it out to face up to that discomfort, to face up to that sin. Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. Since his story had made international headlines, Tanner Eim said he had been inundated by stories from other vicars who had suffered similarly. However, few of them would speak out publicly for fear of hampering their chances of promotion or sullying the church's reputation, which meant the scale of the problem had been hidden. I think, as I've heard it from a lot of other people, but I think one thing that is different is, I think there is different ways of dealing with it. And I think that... Um, I think God has put in my heart to be more prophetic and be a, uh, more of a prophet for the church. Um, and I think there's people who are much more politician-like. So people that experience stuff, but they don't talk about it because they want to move up the ranks. Now for me, I have a pretty um, strong liberation, evangelical liberation theology viewpoint. So I'm like, if you're not going to point out the flaws and power the, the flaws in power when you don't have any i don't think you're actually going to examine it when you actually have it so i don't so i don't really believe in um a, a term we say often in the church of england playing the game i don't believe in playing the game i believe in advancing the kingdom of god and advancing the kingdom of god means calling out things that are really 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 tough to do um and one thing that i have learned more about 
than anything else about when it comes to race um, is and the church's power. People, power is big. And also, I love my I love the Church of England. I really do. Obviously, I wouldn't have spent 11 years serving in it. Most of it for free. Um, but um, one of the most important things to the Church of England is reputation. Um, so we, we, we often talk about doctrine, but actually we care a lot about reputation. We care a lot about what the public thinks, I think, um, because we want to hold on to those seats of power and influence that we have. Because um, I think some people do believe that if we keep on having that, having those um, influence and power, then we can actually evangelize and change the nation through Christ. Um, so, um, so I, I do believe it's in a good place, but but I don't I don't agree with just holding on to power for power's sake. So others pointed to deeper currents within Anglicanism, which made it difficult for people of color to thrive within the C of E. Bishop Snow said the church had been quite assimilationist. So I think we have to be honest and say that actually um, the Church of England itself, of course, has a strong culture. Uh, institutions have cultures. We have ways of doing things, language that we use, rituals, symbols, all these things that, that make up our culture. And the Church of England has a particularly strong culture of its own. Um, but I think then the difficulty is that we have operated with an assimilationist model. In other words, if you want to join the Church of England, you have to become like us. Uh, you have to adopt our culture, our way of doing things. And one of the things that I've been reflecting on a lot recently, particularly, as I say, coming from a Leicester context, is that um, we need to acknowledge the fact that the Church of the Future has to be uh, an, a mix of cultures, an interaction of different cultures, where uh, we don't say to people of global majority heritage, you have to leave your culture at the door and become like us in this church. But rather we say to people, bring your culture with you. And we acknowledge that we will have to change, even as you change as well, um, through our interaction together. So I, it's, it's what's often referred to, I suppose, as intercultural church. So this idea that our churches need to be a mix of cultures and we need a process of active reflection on that interaction between cultures. The historic links between the CAV and colonialism and slavery also come up time and time again. Both Hewitt and James argued that being an established church meant the CAV was, unlike other denominations, closely tied to Englishness and the innate conservatism of the state, making it difficult to expand the boundaries of what it means to be Anglican to include many of those who make up modern Britain. It's unfortunate that... that the UK's colonial history is not featured in schools that would allow people to better understand the way in which race was very much interwoven into to colonial conquest, particularly in the issue of um, the trade in, in enslaved Africans, but more so because it speaks to the reality to, to coin um, or to use a phrase coined by Ambala Vanir Sivanadan, we are here because you were there. And that's a very important thing that people from across the Commonwealth came come to the UK or came to the UK 
largely because people from this country went across the Commonwealth through the process of colonization. One of the, the things that came up with our recent work on the church's historical involvement in the transatlantic trade in enslaved Africans is that slavery and enslavement has cast a long shadow through history. That there are people today who still live the consequences of that abhorrent act. So it's about making people aware that as, as Shakespeare says, that the past is prologue, that what happens in the past very much can impact and lead to what happens in the present and in the future. So there's a, a way in which the Church of England is, is very much linked to, to, to the state. And I make this point to reflect that for historical reasons, the church has probably been more conservative than other churches. But I think there is a specific issue with the Church of England because um, the Church of England is quite proud of itself, its kind of established position, its privileges, its connection with the crown, all those things, you know, just the sheer capital that's embedded in ancient church buildings. So we can we can definitely see ourselves sort of as the posh church as and we can definitely be a church that's experienced as exclusive um just for ordinary white english people um and you think about the history of the church of england all the way through we've been kicking people out you know we john bunyan you know he he he'd been locked in prison by the church of england when he wrote pilgrim's progress you know we don't think about that so you know we the Quakers, we, you know, lovely, peace-loving people. Again, I come from Scarborough. George Whitfield, I think, not George Whitfield. Um, anyway, the founder of the Quakers movement was locked up in Scarborough Castle because he was preaching without a license. You know, all the way through, we've been connected with authority. We've been passing judgment on people. Um, again, we couldn't accommodate the Methodists. This amazing revival movement happened in Britain. And guess what? The Church of England said, no, we don't want you to do this revival stuff in our buildings. Go and do it, you know, out on the street if you can. Um, you know, all the way through, you know, we've not been that accommodating to white people, never mind, you know, people from all around the world. So it is kind of part of our Anglican DNA to be, you know, the English of the English, the white of the white, you know, the, the exclusive of the exclusive. And um, we've just got to keep battling with our own our own instincts, really, to 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 be inclusive. Um, yeah, it's 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 a very big problem for us. And 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 again, there's just so many paradoxes at work where we um, we've got this sort of history of of missions and a global Anglican communion and yet we haven't wanted to kind of acknowledge those people as as part of common a common something with us you know we've we've established churches in the Caribbean or Africa or Asia but then when people from those churches pop up in England we've just we've seen them as other not as together 
In the wake of Black Lives Matter and cases such as those of Tanner Ime and Pereira, the CEE established a task force to urgently examine its record on racism. This then produced a report, From Lament to Action, published in 2021, which urged a sweeping programme of reform to overturn racist culture in the church. The report looked back at 40 years of discussion around race in the church and identified a staggering 25 separate reports going all the way back to the 1980s featuring a total of 160 recommendations. And yet despite all these mountains of paper, black and brown Christians were still enduring discrimination and prejudice and there were still no more ethnic minority bishops now than there had been in the mid-1990s. Much like with safeguarding, for decades, racial justice had just not been taken seriously by the church's hierarchy. Bishop Snow conceded. I think in part we've not um, we've not seen the seriousness of the issue. So it's taken us a while, I think, to wake up to the effect that it has on individuals and groups of people. So I would see it as not dissimilar to the same process of learning we've been through around safeguarding. Uh, there was a time when we absolutely didn't realise the seriousness of, of safeguarding. I think it's just the same with racism. I think it's also uh, true that we have uh, tried to work with so many different priorities within the church um, that inevitably uh, things like uh, the, the integration of people of different cultural backgrounds and so on um, just haven't been a priority because we've been so busy with other things. So uh, inevitably, I think we need to be honest, we have woken up in the same way as society at large has woken up through things like, yes, the murder of George Floyd and the, uh, the huge reaction that there was to that. Um, so, yes, in that sense, we're, we're doing what society has done. And, and, and the general sense that we were part of an institution that had good intentions on issues of racial justice and, and inclusion, but we really lacked the intentionality. But, but in a sense, move, looking at that situation where we've come from, I think what was powerful at the time um, with the, the murder of George Floyd, and, and I don't want to necessarily say good coming out of this, but, but in a sense, what the tragedy brought about was this global awakening to racial injustice and to the extent to which people were at home, locked away, um, viewing this tragedy and unable to escape it because it was in all media, both um, you know, television, social media, everything. You saw across the world, all races, all ages, coming together and calling us to live, live, live in solidarity or live as a common humanity. And, and this happened also in the Church of England. So the archbishops, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York, they convened an anti-racism task force that produced a seminal document which was called From the Men to Action. And it was the church's commitment at that time to stand against the, the sin of racism. And, and, and I say that because racism is not, is rooted, or, or the work from racial justice is rooted in our faith. Henry, the former national advisor, confirmed the perception of a church that had good intentions, but lacked the gumption to actually put any of them into practice. 
when I was leaving the church, I said, the church has the words, it doesn't have the will. The words are meaningless. And it's offensive to me to hear people say, oh, we're institutionally racist or, you know, oh, yes, we're all falling. No, no, no. That, that it's, it's almost an insult. It's, it's almost an insult that as if by saying that and putting it out there, that that is it, you know. We know, no. Well, tell me a bit more actions, detail about what it was like. They say, actions speak louder than words. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about what, what it was like when you did work for the Church of England in that role and you know, did, did you just constantly butt up against people's kind of unwillingness to accept what you were saying, or did they all say, "Oh yes, Elizabeth, you're absolutely right," but nothing would ever happen as a result of it? That's exactly what that's exactly what they did. So for all these years, and there's some, there must be 28 reports at least now. There was over 160 recommendations in those reports, some of which I've written, and those before me wrote. Over 160 recommendations all around addressing, tackling action on racism. And yet, they're still talking about the very same issues in the church that that was spoken of in 1985 in Faith in the City. So, when I say the church has the words, but not the will, there's... There is a prime example of that. Um, I mean, look, Tim, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that needs to be done about racism that the church hasn't been told. What do I mean by that? As I said, there are 20-odd reports, 160-plus recommendations. I used to say it's almost like you keep either commissioning reports or people keep um, writing reports and, you know, giving you all of these recommendations. And it's like, what difference is going to be? If you go through all of those reports and you look at all of those recommendations, I'll save you the trouble, by the way, you don't need to, because they encompass all that needs to be done. It's not that the church has not been told what it needs to do. If you look at the recommendations in Lament of Action, the words might be different. Yes. The way the way they're framed might be different because, you know, what we say now might be slightly different than what we said 20 years ago because maybe we know more, maybe things have changed slightly, so that's understandable. But there isn't anything new, and I don't mean that as a slur to the Lament of Action, by the way. What I'm saying is it is there. There is, there is no... There is nothing that is being hidden. There is nothing that is being concealed that they need to do that they don't know how to, that, 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 that they, they, they haven't already been told. So, has it been different this time round? Three years on, will these latest recommendations simply gather dust on a shelf like all the others? A core recommendation grew into Hewitt's National Racial Justice Unit, tasked with implementing the work of From Lament to Action. Hewitt said he was taking a systematic approach, but admitted they were still only at the very start. I would say a, a systematic approach to tackling issues of racial injustice in the national church, in dioceses, 
in tertiary education institutions where priests are trained in our church schools and in all and any spheres of the church's life. And because of that, because of this systematic approach, I am optimistic that progress is being made, but I would have to say that we are still at the beginning of this journey. I am confident that the resource allocations in terms of the staffing of the commission, in terms of the staffing of this racial justice directorate, in terms of financial allocations to help dioceses and tertiary education institutions respond better to these issues will make that difference that it has not been, that has not happened in the past. Some of the key ideas in From Lament to Action, including every diocese in the Church of England employing a racial justice officer, have already been abandoned. But Hewitt said several other projects were underway, including building networks of ethnic minority clergy to support each other, raising awareness of racism, and developing a training programme to combat racial injustice. In Leicester, Bishop Snow said he had been focusing on building intercultural churches, whereby the diverse communities of his diocese could all bring their full selves into church. So I could uh, take you to one of our churches in uh, the sort of uh, just north of the city centre in Leicester, an area which is uh, predominantly people of South Asian heritage, so most of, of either Hindu or Muslim faith, um, but where we have a church now which is made up primarily of, again, of people of South Asian heritage, but Christians worshipping together uh, in church. Um, if I take you through the door of that church, you'll immediately notice uh, some things which look very familiar, uh, wooden pews, uh, altar at the front of church, etc. Uh, but some things that will look very different. So they uh, have all sorts of um, uh, banners and uh, uh, various different uh, colourful displays, if you like, all around the church which speak of hospitality speak of welcome um and would immediately sort of transfer you know take you in your senses i suppose in to somewhere like india in uh in the sort of the color the vibrancy and so on of it all and then in their church service uh you would notice straight away that they use different languages so um it, most of it is in english but at various points in the service the, uh, the minister will translate different parts of the service into Gujarat or Hindi or whatever it may be. And um, that's a recognition that for people of different cultures, um, being able to worship in their own language does matter. And uh, there is something about that, that fact that actually it's an acknowledgement of their culture and a, a strong signal to say, yes, bring your culture with you. Um, the music, similarly, will will have a sort of Indian feel to it. Uh, there may be some English hymns, traditional English hymns, but there'll also be other bits which are uh, very traditionally uh, Indian as well. So, so it, there's a very obvious sort of mix of cultures on that level. Bishop Snow also said he had been urging churches to encourage their congregants to say the Lord's Prayer during services in their mother's tongue, not just English. And he'd also been reflecting on how to make church guidance more flexible to accommodate different cultural expectations. One example he gave was of how a local Leicester businessman has started visiting a church-run food bank recently and ended each trip by handing over a donation of more than £1,000 in banknotes in their final handshake with the vicar. Now, 
you know, that for me immediately sends up all sorts of red flags about, you know, what now is happening with this cash and how's it going to be accounted for and uh, et cetera, et cetera. All the sort of typical Western uh, questions, if you like. But I suppose I, I had to immediately stop and think, well, actually, perhaps in another culture, this is a very different way of doing things. This is very personal. It's it's him showing in a very uh, personal way that he wants to support what's happening. Uh, he wants to encourage the minister uh, and so on. So, you know, we have with that church, we have come up against all sorts of questions about governance, about leadership, about finance, things that are done in a very different way in different cultures. And the easy thing for me to do as bishop would be to say, well, this is what we do as Church of England. You have to do it in the way that we've set out. Um, but I want actually to have a system now whereby I always ask the question about, well, why do we do it in this particular way? And could it be actually we need to learn different ways of doing these things? Tanner Eim said a recent wave of senior appointments of ethnic minority clergy as bishops and deans was undoubtedly a big step in the right direction. There has been some some really good benefits of um, the uh, Racial Justice Commission of the Church of England and like the appointments of um, Black and ethnic minority people, global heritage people, has been tremendous. Been a massive change in in the last you know four years. Um, people that I'm like you know it's it's the the the, the, the big leadership has been gotten bigger and has gotten more diverse and looks representation of the country. Of the more than 100 bishops in the church, 10 are now people of colour, of whom six were only appointed in the last two years alone. Hewitt insisted that the CAV was not simply trying to reflect demographic trends, however, or ape secular bodies' obsession with diversity, equity and inclusion. Yes, I think there is a distinctive approach to how we as Christians approach the issue of dismantling racism or promoting racial justice. Because our commitment as a church to racial justice isn't simply to re reflect demographic trends or to be socially responsive, pursuing equality, diversity, and, and inclusion, both of which I have to emphasize are admirable and, and should be there, nor is it to engage in a culture war. But we as Christians stand against racism because we see it as evil and a pernicious sin. So our mandate as a church, our mandate as Christians, flows not from identity politics, but from our primary in identity in Christ. It flows from our desire to reflect the imaginal day by being united in Christ and manifesting him through us and through our love. And, and, and so in doing that, we, we draw heavily on what St. Paul says in Galatians 3.8, when he says, sorry, in Galatians 3 um, verse 28, when he says, that there's no longer Jews, nor Greek, slave, nor free, or male and female, for we are all one in Christ. And, and in, that, in that passage, in that verse, we see Paul dissolving social divisions. We see Paul trying to make us all brothers and sisters united in a common saviour. 
But despite all this, many do still worry the super tanker that is the CV is not yet turning around fast enough. Henry said it was too early to see if the current push for racial justice would actually change anything meaningful in the long term. I think it's too soon to say, and I'm not dodging the question, I'm genuinely not. What is it that the racial justice unit is going to do or plans to do that is finally going to address the issue of racism in the church? And so does that leave you fairly pessimistic about the prospect of of meaningful change in the church? Mm, It should do, shouldn't it? And and I have to say, on, on some days it does. Um, however, there is another theological concept that you are, I know, very aware of, and hope. If we didn't have the promise of hope, we might not even have the Christian faith, for that matter, if we didn't have it. And so, yeah, I most definitely have days where I could be probably described as extremely pessimistic. But one of the reasons why I keep on with this struggle, and I will continue to keep on with this, is because I believe racial justice is a right, a human right. In terms of our Christianity, any Christian that says they don't believe in justice, well, then that's counteracted to the very idea of our faith. It's a foundation of our faith. And so I wholly believe in justice. And in my not-so-cynical moments or times, I have hope that we can change and that we can make a change. Her words were echoed by Tana Eim. My favourite my favorite, theolo- my favorite theologian philosopher's name is Cornell West. And he says, I'm not an optimist, I'm a prisoner of hope. And I and I always say that I'm a prisoner of hope. So um, everyone wants somewhere to live. They want someone to love and they want something to hope for. And it is something that I truly do hope for. Um, I see some positive things happening out of it without a doubt. Um, but the priority very much is um, in the people of God and in the lay people, which is the majority of the church. Up stuff. So I think. Um, doing those things is really, really, really important. And having lay people, release lay people to be able to look like us. And I think that limited action is amazing, you know, and the commission's only for another, I think, year, year and a half. So um, so we'll see what happens. And it was people's frustration of there's been report after report after report after report. Um, and I feel like, you know, and the nice thing is limited action and the Racial Justice Commission has been given finances that's the difference. It's been finances to things. But Pereira was more downbeat. He said too many senior figures were only paying lip service to rooting out racism and were still unwilling to actually put in the time and money required to dismantle centuries of prejudice. The bishop who had written the infamous email about him had been given a rebuke and made to go on a training course. But beyond that, little had changed. To date, no one really has been held accountable apart from the re- former retired bishop of bristol and uh, and he's the the scapegoat he's the fall guy for this they've just got oh he's retired great go go get rebuked i'm not the right person that's the feeling you're left with uh it's really deeply deeply wounding 
And moreover, the impact on the whole church, because it's a gift from God. We're sent as God, as a gift from God. He puts out these charisms in us. And that gift is, is the impact of it is reduced. That's what's, that's what's so immoral and sinful about it um, in the long run. We're the image of God and you are dissing the image of God on a basis of race. It's not one bad actor. It's not one bad apple in the barrel. It's the entire rotten, rotten tree, I'm afraid, it's, uh, which is producing bad fruit. Uh, and I'm sad to say that. Um, I'm still getting, I'm still a focal point. I'm still getting people ringing, email, emailing me saying, what do I do? How do I, what should I do about this? And what is noticeable, and this is, this is a, a key point I'd like to make is that they are UK ME. The majority of people who come to me are UK ME clergy in that they've been born or brought up in the UK and and they're going through the process in the UK or their clergy now in the UK and they have an expectation that everything would be okay and that they would have those opportunities and access to the opportunities. They wouldn't face kind of discrimination, but they are. They are facing discrimination. And, and then they the defense often put against them is, oh, but look, represent, oh, look, we've got a bishop, so-and-so, or we've got somebody from from uh, an ethnic minority or we've got a U- we've got a gmh person on the racial justice or we got someone there but that's a different experience if you are gmh and you've been ordained in a system outside the uk um you know, you know in the caribbean or in africa or in asia your experience in my view i'm maybe generalizing here is likely to be different to someone who's uk me um because I'm expecting the same as my colleagues. I'm expecting the same as my white colleagues. Uh, how What happens to them? The same pathways and routes. And what I'm finding or experiencing is very different. But I do get a lot of people coming to me. What I'm finding is that people are not going to their diocesan, or let's, let me put it this way. Some people are not going to their diocesan racial justice officer or to the other racial justice unit to guy and uh but they are coming to me and the majority of those people who are coming to me are uk me and it's not even i've got one from two weeks ago that an incident happened just two weeks ago which is to me blatantly uh racist and um uh, discriminatory and stereotyped and why should we've had now all the lament to action? We've had all the racial justice weekend just this Sunday. So why is this still happening? This should not be happening. And it's right across the board. It's not just some provincial church. This is big churches. This is a big thing. Fearing the racial justice unit lacked real teeth, Pereira has led a group complaint by ethnic minority clergy to the Equality and Human Rights Commission last year, hoping that this statutory body could help hold the church to account. But recently, the commission informed him that they decided not to take up the case. Have you ever considered that the Church of England is kind of unfixable and you would be better off serving in a different denomination that was more diverse or that was less kind of, that didn't struggle with the same things? Have you ever given up on the Church of England or, or thought you might give up on the Church of England? 
No, no, I haven't because one, I'm called to it. And uh, to me, it is, uh, you're an agent of change. I am an agent of change within it. I cannot see why, I cannot, I cannot see any other, I think it's right across the denomination because it is so white Eurocentric. I don't like using those words, white privilege and those kind of, um, you know, I, I would rather not have to use that, those kind of phrases. But it is so embedded, <laughs> enculturated, that even other, I see it even in the independent churches. There is a big issue of based on colour, based on ethnicity and race that needs to be changed. And it's a whole societal problem. However, the church is the vanguard. We are the we are the people with the vision given to us in Ephesians of this of this church, which reveals God's wisdom, the mystery of the church. We we are the people of God who should be pushing that vision out. Uh, so I expect more from the church. Both Bishop Snow and James said they were committed as white Anglican leaders, to using their voice and their platforms to keep the issue of racial justice at the top of the agenda. Do, do you feel hopeful about the future? No, I just feel determined. You know, I am I feel it's a fight, and I'm here to fight. And if anyone wants to fight with me, here I am, you know. Um, and and I, I'd, I'd urge that attitude on everyone, that actually, you know, don't expect it all to be nice as pie expect it to be a fight and and just know which side you're on because you know there are really formidable enemies to to racial justice that you can see active in the media every day and unfortunately um you know there are there are just bits of the british media who weaponize and stoke prejudice who who feed off it and you know reinforce it and back it up and and make it continue and a lot of these currents come from north america as well where there's a very sort of toxic culture in many ways and we've just got to keep um calling that out and and resisting it sometimes we just need to allow ourselves to be to be gobsmacked by the story of God revealed in the life of Christ and and stop thinking that it's it's all about us and our whiteness and our Britishness and you know all these things that are important and, and meaningful and real but actually are not what Christian discipleship is ultimately all about. Absolutely. We need to be ensuring that the voices of people of global majority heritage uh, are heard within our churches much more than they have been uh, before now. But I think we need to acknowledge that the reality is still in the Church of England that power lies predominantly with white British people. Um, you know, we have shaped the culture of the Church of England. Uh, the majority of bishops, the majority of those in senior uh, leadership positions in dioceses uh, across the board in the Church of England are still white British. So there's a huge issue of power here. 
And for me, therefore, it's a constant, it's just a daily challenge, if you like, that I have to face in terms of how am I going to, to use the power that's been given to me as, as a bishop? And I can't deny that, that actually I've been given considerable power. But how am I going to use that in a way that does ensure that the voices of global majority heritage people are heard, that the experiences of racism, the experiences of daily you know, microaggressions and so on, that they are properly heard and that we take action uh, so, so it, it involves all of us. I'm absolutely clear on that. It's not a one or the other. Um, but I think at its heart, and this again goes back to, you know, how we approach things differently, I think, in, in the church from the rest of society. Actually, there is something spiritual in all of this for me, uh, something about our spirituality. So, you know, we talk quite a bit now in the Church of England of needing to learn humility. You know, we occupy a very different place in society now from where we were before. So it's that humility which says, actually, we've got a huge amount to learn about this. So, you know, let's step back from a moment from, from the position of power. Let's actually create some space for people of global majority heritage to start to shape what the church looks like uh, for the future. Um, that's not easy. You know, uh, all of us, I think, you know, we, uh, uh, we we want to take initiative. We want to be the ones uh, leading uh, things and so on so actually taking a step back from that uh, is not easy at all but I think that's what it's going to need I'd say that we're making baby steps but we've got a very very long journey to go so I think you know the establishment of the racial justice unit in the national church is a is a really good step forward um, and they're doing some excellent excellent work I think the fact that a number of dioceses like my own I think have started to to put real money and resources into this work again is good um, church commissioners have set up this impact investment fund um, again with the majority of, of sort of global majority heritage people who will be uh, exploring how that money can be best used to address these issues um, yeah they, they, these are all baby steps I, th I think we have begun to take action but there's a very, very long way to go. And my big question is, have we really got the resolve to, to continue this over the years to come rather than for it just to be, you know, another initiative which lasts for a few years and then gets taken over by something else? So, uh, I mean, I am actively campaigning and I've, I've spoken with the Archbishop of Canterbury and with others about this. Uh, I am really concerned that we need to see this through now and, uh, and continue the action for as long as it takes. In the end, the church's journey of racial reconciliation was never going to happen overnight, Hewitt concluded. However, I remain confident that with the current leadership of the church, supported by our faith and working with those who really believe that the Holy Spirit is moving amongst us now, we, we can dissolve the barriers that have been impediments in the past to making us truly one in Christ. But, but the, the reality of it is that such a journey of reconciliation um, will neither be swift nor easy. You can't heal generations of marginalization or injustice overnight. And one of the, the important points that, that has been made by, by the chair of our Racial Justice Commission, Lord Botang, is that Racism is not a stain that can be simply washed away. 
but it is a gaping wound in the body of Christ that can only be healed through truth-telling and overt acts of repair and reconciliation. So, so there is a journey. I am. I believe we are on it. It won't be easy, but if we stay true to our faith and true to this cause, I believe that we will get there. That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But before you go, please do leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. And why not tell a friend about the show too? And if you'd like even more church news analysis, you can also subscribe to my new free email newsletter, The Critical Friend. Each week, I send an email packed with links to interesting things happening in the church world and my commentary on them. Just visit tswyatt.substack.com to find out more and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast. 